Just as the moon receives its light from the sun, so the royal power receives the splendor of its dignity from pontifical authority. Pope Innocent III. Did that cap cut out? Anyway, we're live. I'm here with Hazlitt. Haz, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Okay, I've been well, patiently waiting. Me. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thanks for uh, re-inviting me. No problem. To finally, do this. Anytime, because I've been I've been curious about integralism for a while, and mm. when I, but when I invited you for this, I knew like next to nothing. Watched maybe two videos to prepare for this. Now I could probably do the episode. <laughs> Oh, that's good. But um, but I still got the same list of questions from last time. Maybe expound upon a few of them a bit more in my head, non-paper. Yeah. So this is going to be uh, fun. Before we get started, go ahead and study the audience a little bit about yourself. You were on oh. once before, but the episode was taken down because we uh, either we watched too much of John Oliver or we made too much fun of him. I, um, I think it's probably a bit of both. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, what is there to say? I'm a convert to Catholicism. Um, I'm a master's student in theology uh, in London, King's College. Um, that that that's about it. There's nothing. There's nothing else really. Nothing. No more interesting details about me. Okay. Well, let's let's get into it. Has what is integralism? Okay. So episode on integralism that's the best place to start um a, a lot a lot of people are very confused about what integralism actually means and there's about a thousand different definitions proffered by a thousand different people but what integralism really is what it really means uh, is orthodoxy on a point of doctrine concerning the relation between the temporal power and the spiritual power or to put that in modern parlance between church and state. Um, it does not mean, as many people, its opponents contend, a particular political ideology. It's not a form of clericalism. It's not a form of theocracy. Um, it's non-ideological. Um, that's what the modernists and the opponents of integralism will tell you, that it's ideological. And of course, if it were merely a political ideology, then the opponents of integralism, uh, they'd be entitled to reject and oppose it. For as um, many pontiffs have taught, as Leo the Thirteenth taught, uh, in particular in his encyclical um, uh, *Sapientiae Christiane*, uh, the Church is not wed to one form of government more than to any other. Uh, the Church can accommodate and uh, monarchism, uh, republicanism aristocracy of course the only prerequisite for a governmental system is that it upholds the common good and the divine rights of god uh, but integralism is something fundamentally different to say monarchism or republicanism uh, it doesn't the term integralism doesn't denote a political system per se but as i say it denotes doctrine orthodoxy concerning doctrine doctrine that has been infallibly taught by the teaching church uh, and it is therefore something that all Catholics are compelled to assent to because it's fundamentally doctrinal. And so the term integralism, although it's, you know, it has 
there are political dimensions to it, the term itself is more like the term Trinitarianism than the term monarchism, uh, in as much as Trinitarianism, like integralism, denotes doctrinal orthodoxy. Trinitarianism, of course, doctrinal orthodoxy concerning the uh, tripersonality of God, uh, whereas monarchism <coughs> denotes uh, a system of government, which is what integralism does not denote. Integralism denotes doctrinal orthodoxy. Mm. Now, the doctrine which integralism concerns, which the term integralism points to, is uh, commonly referred to in the uh, in, in, in the tradition of the church as the doctrine of the two swords. You might have come across this phrase, the two swords. It, it, it is um, a, the two sword phrase does go hard, I will say. Like, it, do, yeah, it does, it does, of course. Um, basically, the, the, the doctrine of the two swords, which is the doctrine which integralism points to, uh, is that, that, that there are two powers, two swords, the temporal power and the spiritual power. Um, St. Peter Damien, doctor of the church, he teaches, uh, or rather he, he says that the two swords are the royal power on the one hand and the pontifical power on the other hand. Of course, you could substitute royal power for uh, democratic power or for uh, aristocratic power. It's the political power, whereas the spiritual power, on the other hand, is the is the, uh, the spiritual power of the church. Um, an another doctor, very important for integralism, Saint Bernard, uh, Saint Bernard or Saint Bernard, depending on your pronunciation, um, he teaches very clearly that the church possesses both swords. The temporal power and the spiritual power are both in the in, in the gift of the church. They belong to the church by right. They, they emanate from God and God gives these two swords to the church. But the church elects, or not elects, she she only exercises the spiritual sword directly. Just, uh, that's God's instruction to her to only exercise the spiritual sword, except in cases of necessity. Uh, and the temporal sword, on the other hand, is exercised not by the uh, hierarchy of the church, <coughs> by the temporal rulers, by the kings, the priests, uh, the, sorry, the kings, the princes, uh, the politicians, uh, the soldiers, and so forth, depending on the political system. Um, so while the temporal sword is exercised by the temporal rulers, and the spiritual sword is exercised by the church, the temporal power is subordinate to the spiritual power because in the hierarchy of goods the temporal power of uh, the temporal good is inferior to the spiritual good and we'll mm. probably discuss this in further detail in a moment um so that's really the essence of integralism it's orthodoxy about the relation between the two powers between the two swords those two swords are the temporal sword and the spiritual sword, and the former is subordinate to the latter. So that's integralism in a uh, in, in a nutshell, I suppose. Hmm. Under integralism, what role would the church be playing? Like, would it be arbitrating laws? Would it be uh, just play a ceremonial role? Would it work as a court system? Like, what role would it replace Congress yeah. in America? Like, what would the role be of the uh, the church being integral? If, if integralism was the um, not it's not an ideology can be adopted, but if it was the the main course of thought in the political society. Yeah. Okay. So 
we can say a few things about this. First of all, the church exercises the spiritual power directly. She exercises the temporal power only indirectly most of the time. Um, uh, St. Robert Bellamine, the great Jesuit doctor, he's a he's Yeah, yeah, he's he, yeah absolutely. Um, he he taught that the um, the church has sort of sort of supreme temporal authority, but indirectly so, because it gives the temporal sword to the temporal rulers, and the temporal rulers are, insofar as their actions concern temporal matters, free in that sphere to conduct temporal affairs. It, the church isn't going to intervene, isn't going to tell them precisely what policies they're, they're meant to enact. Um, the stipulation of that, of course, is that they will put the temporal sword at the service of the uh, spiritual good, at the service of man's et um, eternal end, which is beatitude, of course. Uh, so one misconception that people have about integralism is that in it entails theocracy. You know, the, it, it's like um, the bishops are going to be running temporal affairs. The bishops are probably busy enough already. <laughs> I don't think they, they have time to run the affairs of state. And of course, it's undesirable for the priestly authority to do that um, on account of human frailty and, off, and, and the fall. Um, after the fall, and in particular in the new law, uh, it, um, it, well, especially under the new law, it's now ordained that the temporal authority and the spiritual authority should be um, should be in some way distinct, not 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 typically exercised by the same person, um, albeit they should be in integrated, and that the temporal authority should be at the service of the spiritual authority. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, if it if the temporal power is um, lent to the spirits of power, not lent to, if, um, aligned with the spirits of power towards getting men to the you know mm -hmm. teleological end of beatitude, would there be like a restriction saying you can't pass you can't pass laws on um, certain actions that would inhibit the individual from achieving his uh, his end? Like could could they would it work like the if the people, say, it was in a democracy, and the people wanted, you know, uh, um, to make abortion legal, could the would it search would it would it simple power to subject itself to the church when the church says no abortion is illegal, is immoral, therefore to be illegal? Like how um, does that how would that work? How would that um work? Yes, yes, no, no, that's correct. And of course, even even outside of Christendom, where you don't have integralism in practice, um, the natural law still applies. Rulers are still um, under the natural law, and outside of Christendom, if you had a baptized ruler, if 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 the temporal ruler was uh, a baptized Christian, was a Catholic, even though the temporal society is not um, is not properly ordered towards the true religion, negative duties under the moral law still apply because they apply all times and all places. Mm. Um, and the church has thought that they should be enforced on a Catholic temporal ruler, even outside of, um, even outside of uh, Christendom, um, by the uh, imposition of certain um, 
penalties. So as you gave the example, I think, did you say that they if, say if they were trying to legislate to kill the unborn? Yeah. Um, even outside of Christendom, where the spiritual power doesn't have this relation of, of, um, of um, doesn't have the integralist relation, the pontifical power, the hierarchy could still apply penalties to a baptized Christian ruler who, uh, you know, attempts to do that kind of thing. Um, within Christendom, where you have the integralist structure, um, where the temporal power is directed towards the spiritual good, where the, king, the social kingship of Christ is recognized, legally recognized, uh, and so forth, this, the temporal power then is subject to the spiritual power, and while it retains its, its proper authority in, its, in, in temporal matters, it does then have the obligation to act as a minister of the church, and it has to serve the church insofar as it has to serve the spiritual ends of the church, it has to enact laws, uh, it, it has to enact laws that further man's supernatural end so you gave of um would would they have to, i think you said something like would they have to enact laws that conform to the law of christ something like that yes they would that that would be a that would be a uh, requirement how would that uh, would that be like the king not wanting to uh, get excommunicated in a hypothetical today would it be laws on the books that would prevent the king from undoing anything would it would it just have like a veto power or is it more of this like a a mindset that um people in power should have towards the church itself? Like, is it a, is it a practical thing with laws or, mm -hmm. or, or power, or is it more of a, is integralism more of a mindset for leaders to have when they go into um, dealing with um, issues of mores? Yes. So if in Christendom or even outside Christendom, if a baptized Christian temporal ruler was, um, was enacting immoral laws, laws contrary to the law of Christ, and he, and he was not listening to the exhortations of his of, of priests and of bishops and of the Pope. Then they could they could enact certain spiritual um, penalties. They could excommunicate him. Yes, that 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 that's something that, and indeed that's something historically that 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 has happened. Um, but within Christendom, when, when you have the relation, when you, when you have this structure rather of Christendom and you have an integralist um, system, um, like I say, the, the temporal power is free and independent in its in temporal matters, but they have to use the temporal sword for the, uh, for the um, supernatural good. That, that's the sense in which they're subject to the church. And if they fail in that duty, then the church, that's when the church can sort of intervene. That's when it can make interventions. But ordinarily, in the ordinary course of affairs, the church won't be intervening in temporal affairs. Mm. Um, and again, to make this point, integralism is not a synonym for, for theocracy. Mm. You know, this is not a case of priests um, exercising the temporal power as we've briefly discussed already, the um, the teaching of the two swords is very clear that both swords, while they're in the gift of the church, only the spiritual sword is exercised directly by the church. 
the temporal sword <clears throat> is wielded by the temporal rulers and so long as they're you know keeping up their end of the uh, end of the deal the church won't intervene and pretend to do their job for them is there a basis for like uh, temporalism like is there paper encyclicals uh saints who have written about it in detail is there a natural law basis or yeah um if you it's always please uh, explain, reference some explain some you know i would, I would leave people some ideas of where they can go to read more about this or a good argument okay. of natural law to think about yeah so a, a, a claim i've made already is that integralism is not a um an ideology or a fad of certain catholics it's a um but it's doctrinal orthodoxy um that the two swords the doctrine of the two swords is a true doctrine um so starting with the scriptural teaching uh saint luke's gospel i think in the 20 in chapter 22 towards the end of his um re uh, recounting of the last supper um our lord he turns to his disciples and he says you know when i first sent you out to preach this is early on in his ministry he asked them if they lacked anything he says um let me find it i'm looking he for says, it now uh he says when I, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, did you want anything? But they said nothing. Then said he unto them, but now that he hath a purse, let him take it and likewise a script. And he that hath not, let him sell his coat and buy a sword. For I say to you that, that this that is written must yet be fulfilled in me. And with the wicked was he reckoned. The things concerning me have an end, but they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So it's a very, um, very enigmatic, very mysterious passage. And prima facie, it's not so clear what the gospel is teaching here. Um, and indeed, the fathers of the church didn't really provide any comprehensive exegesis of this passage and it wasn't really until the 11th century that the church comes to understand the rather profound truth that's being revealed here um two figures i've already discussed two doctors saint peter damien and saint bernard they every time you say uh, i hear saint peter damien i keep thinking you someone's gonna say um say saint peter diamond from the uh, vatican catholic people <laughs> I know that's not people are saying, but I hear. <laughs> All right, please continue. Yes, so, okay, so these two doctors, St. Peter Damien and St. Bernard, uh, <laughs> again, I've said they, they interpret the two swords to represent the temporal political power, the power of the uh, Chivitas, and the spirit, and then and this, and this, and the second sword they interpret as the spiritual sword the spiritual power of the church um that was their exegesis about what what christ is talking about here when he talks about the sword and, if, and indeed elsewhere in uh, <coughs> holy writ the sword the, the term sword is taken as a metaphor for the material and the spiritual powers um i think in romans saint paul uh he talks about um 
the, the temporal power of the emperor, he uses the word sword. Um, and of course, in Hebrews and in Revelation, um, the, the word of God is sometimes referred to as a double-edged sword. And so throughout scripture, there are references to uh, both temporal power and spiritual power as being kinds of swords, as being a sword. Um, and later, uh, and I swear in the gospel, um, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord, um, you'll remember, he rebukes St. Peter when St. Peter draws his sword to defend him. Uh, he tells him, you know, put That's up it. thy sword into thy scabbard. Um, yeah, I, of course you'll remember this. I like um, I like the, um, I can see where like, the connection here between the two swords, St. Peter, St. Apostles, priests, pulling the sword, yes. spirit of power. I can see that line there, and I, I really like that. Uh, was that was that was that um, Dame, uh, Saint Damien? Or was that uh, Bellarmine? Saint Bellarmine, who uh, um, wrote about that the, one. This is Saint Bernard. Bernard, okay. This the the exegesis here. Is, that, that, uh, I like that one more. I'm, I'm gonna look it up later. Bernard. Yeah. So when when our Lord tells Peter to put his sword away, of course, on one level. As the fathers talk about the different levels and the senses of scripture, on one level he's telling you know just he means that just put your sword away. But on on the on the deeper, more spiritual level, what 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 our Lord is um, telling Saint Peter is that while the sword belongs to him as the vicar of Christ, as uh, the Roman Pontiff, as 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 the Catholic Church. He is not the one who is typically to wield the temporal power. Mm. The temporal power is to be wielded by temporal rulers who are, who are not the hierarchy, but for the good and the benefit of the spiritual power. Mm. Um, so. I like that. I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. 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 That is very um, good. Saint Bernard, I, you said. Okay, yeah, Saint Bernard. And continuing with Saint Bernard, I, if I can find it, I want to read a something that he wrote in a letter to Pope Eugene the uh, Third. He said, uh, continuing with <coughs> uh, continuing with this exegesis, he says, and, he, and again he's writing to Pope Eugene the Third here. He says, "He who would deny that the sword belongs to you, to the Pope." has not, as I conceive, sufficiently weighed the words of the Lord, where he said, speaking to Peter, put up thy sword into thy scabbard. For it is here plainly implied that even the material sword is yours, to be drawn at your bidding, though not by your hand. Mm. And he continues, unless this sword also pertain to you in some sense, then when the disciples said to Christ, Lord, behold, here are two swords, he would never have answered, it is enough, but rather it is too much. We can therefore conclude that both swords, namely the spiritual and the material, belong to the church and that the latter is to be used for the church, that's the temporal power, the former by the church, the spiritual mm. power. And so that's the uh, that that's the bulk of his exegesis of this passage, this mysterious passage in Saint Luke's Gospel, 
which for many centuries was not fully appreciated until mm. St. Peter Damien, St. Bernard elucidated its deeper meaning, which is that there are two swords, temporal and spiritual, that they both belong to the church, but only the spiritual is to be used directly by the church. The temporal is to be used by temporal rulers, but in a relation of subordination, that the temporal power is subordinate to the spiritual power. Hmm. And um, <coughs> you, you, you asked if there was any uh, solemn teaching, if, 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 if you could find this in a papal encyclical or in, a, in an infallible definition somewhere. Uh, and, and, and you can. Uh, the doctrine of the two swords and this particular exegesis was infallibly defined by uh, Pope Boniface VIII in, in, in his solemn uh, teaching in, in the papal ball um, Unum Sanctum. Uh, where he he basically repeats what St. Bernard uh, writes verbatim. Um, so I'll read part of that papal bull. It's only a page long, um, and, this is only, and this is only a segment of that. And you'll be able to see how very similar it is to what we just heard from St. Bernard. So Pope Boniface VIII, he writes, we are informed by the texts of the Gospels that in this church and in its power are two sorts, namely the spiritual and the temporal. For when the apostles say, behold, here are two swords, that is to say, in the church, since the apostles were speaking, the Lord did not reply that there were too many, but enough. Certainly, the one who denies that the temporal sword is in the power of Peter has not listened well to the word of the Lord commanding, Put up thy sword into thy scabbard. Therefore, both are in the power of the church, namely the spiritual sword and the material. But indeed, the latter is to be exercised on behalf of the church. And truly, the former is to be exercised by the church. The former is of the priest. The latter is by the hand of the kings and soldiers. But at the will and sufferance of the priest. However, one sword ought to be subordinated to the other. And temporal authority subjected to spiritual power for since the apostle said there is no power except from god and the things that are are ordained by god but they would not be ordained if one sword were not subordinated to the other and if the inferior one as it were were not led upwards by the other for according to the blessed Dionys uh, 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 dionysius uh, it is a law of the divinity that the lowest things reach the highest place by intermediaries, then according to the order of the universe, all things are not led back toward equally and immediately, but the lowest by the intermediary and the inferior by the superior. Hence, we must recognize the more clearly, hence we must recognize the more clearly that spiritual power surpasses in dignity and in ability any temporal power, whatever, as spiritual things surpass the temporal. So, to recapitulate what the uh, Pope has taught there. The temporal sword and the spiritual sword, they are both the property of the church, but the church gives the temporal sword to temporal rulers. But the temporal rulers must wield the temporal sword for the good of the, uh, the, good of the church, for the good of the spiritual sword. 
and 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 you know and uh, another point to make here is that this is not some uh, medieval theologian's exegesis. Well, it is, but but it's also the Pope's solemnly defined exegesis, <laughs> and you know, good good Catholics understand what that means in terms of oh, you know, I don't have any choice in the matter. I have to I have to assent to this. It actually um, might be a small divergence, but I would love to hear you go through. Um, <clears throat> there seems to be I, I've heard conflicting reports. I, I tend to lean with your your side, but I heard conflicting reports about like what is supposed to be accepted by lay people in the church when it comes to encyclicals, paper bulls, and uh, I mean, obviously, oh, fallible dogmas and yeah. fallible as CMT scenes. Um, but okay. I've heard arguments saying the um, yeah, exactly. and these kind of things don't have to be accepted. So, what is the argument for okay. they, they are supposed to be accepted? Yeah, it's it, it's very simple. Okay, so the magisterium can teach infallibly or non-infallibly. It can teach infallibly in uh, three, three ways. The Pope can teach infallibly uh, by himself, ex cathedra, he can make a solemn, um, he can make a he, he, he can uh, make a solemn decree. He can teach infallibly that way. Um, the second way that the magisterium teaches infallibly, and of course infallibly means without without error, mm. um, uh, is it, is through a, the solemn teaching of an ecumenical or general council. Um, and the third way is through what's called the universal and ordinary magisterium. Which is where uh, all the all, all the all the all the popes all, all the bishops and the pope teach a matter of faith and morals, and they all hold to this teaching. That's essentially the universal teaching of the church, but the church is always taught, uh, although not solemnly defined, and that constitutes an infallible teaching. But the church can also teach non-infallibly. Uh, most of the time, in encyclicals. The church, the, the Pope is teaching non-infallibly. Uh, he he's he's teaching a doctrine, but he doesn't uh, intend to do so. Uh, he doesn't intend to do so solemnly and infallibly. So while we are, while while we have to assent uh, to, we we have to give definitive assent to the infallible teachings. Um, you know, we have, we have to believe it with um with with, with divine and Catholic faith, the infallible teachings, the non-infallible teachings, we, 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 are, we are required to give religious assent to. Mm. We're not, we're not, but, but that, that's the thing. We're required to assent to them nevertheless, although the degree of assent is less. The point is, it's can still you, assent. Can you explain the difference between a, uh, the, 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 you, you um, said assent to by a lesser degree, what are the different degrees of assent here to a doctor? You said religious assent, how would that differ from any other kind of uh, assent to? Like, can you just explain the differences real quick? The, uh, you, you sorry, want me to explain the differences between what? Uh, you said um, we have to assent to it, religiously, religiously assent to it, and you said earlier the different kind of assent, where it was like, um, I have to hold to it as a matter of face and mores. You said there's, there's a distinction here. What is the distinction exactly? Like, um, Oh, right, okay. Um, so, a Infallible teaching demands divine and Catholic faith, a full, full assent of faith, whereas a 
ordinary teaching, a non-infallible teaching, demands um, the, the, the sort of the religious ascent, which is the submission of mind, of intellect um, to the teaching. And of course, the full ascent of faith is a, it's, it's, it's a higher degree of ascent because of the degree of um, theological certitude, because an infallible teaching is infallibly true, whereas a non-infallible teaching, uh, there is a very limit, there is a limited degree of error possible. Um, not the, the, the error that's possible in a um, non-infallible teaching is such that it's not so great that it could be injurious uh, to the salvation of the faithful. Hmm. It's not going to lead, they're, they're the kind of errors that won't lead the faithful away from the path of salvation. But at okay. the same time, they're not errors that are so trivial that, you know, basically not errors. Hmm. And so okay. to these teachings, we've got we've got to give religious assent. To the to the infallible teachings, we've got to give divine and Catholic assent. But you think about this: the kind of assent you have to the, the kind of assent you have to give to non-infallible teachings is an enormous degree of assent anyway. And it's and it's and it's a greater degree of assent you'll give to things in secular life. It's this you have to it, it's this full it's like a submission of one's mind of one's will and one's intellect to this teaching. It's not divine and Catholic ascent, divine and Catholic faith, but it's still an enormous, an enormous degree of ascent that you must give. So if anyone tells you, oh, you know, as Catholics, we only have to believe what the church is infallibly taught, that's, no, that, 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 that's a nonsense. And sometimes that's what quasi-modernists uh, will tell you, because it will then rule out and it will preclude from belief the great body of the church's moral teachings, which are um, oftentimes infallibly taught by the universal ordinary magisteri. Um, so, and, and, and I also sometimes see people who describe themselves as trads, as traditionalists, sometimes they, they you know, well, it's not infallible teaching. They, sometimes they, 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 uh, they, they say this in order to um, depart from the Second Vatican Council, mm. but they're playing the same game as uh, as modernists in re in rejecting the teachings of the Catholic Church. Hmm. Okay, back to um, integralism. You've hmm. mentioned uh, good. We now we've mentioned the the goal of the uh, temple powers should be to create a society uh, that would better. Uh, assist people or um, not in, interfere with people's attempts on a um, reaching, uh, achieving the natural teleological ends of um, man. Mm -hmm. um, this, I'm, I'm only add, I, I know the answer to this one. It's not that complicated of a question, but because I have several libertarians who listened and this is like a button issue for them, how do you define the common good and what is good for the uh, society? Okay. So you said. Uh... You said you think you'd you, you you said you think you've got a you've got a, an answer. So I'm curious to know because of course you 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 mentioned our good friends the libertarians. They hear the word common good, which in the Catholic tradition 
is 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 a um is a very revered concept mm. sort of the fundamental one of one of the fundamental political concepts but to them common good common good common good is uh is is, is a sort of um it's a euphemism for justifying it's a euphemism for power. Like communism, isn't it? Like, oh, <laughs> you talk about, you know, you, if you mentioned, oh, the common good, you're basically Lenin. So, um, well, to them at least. So, uh, what's your... Um, I, what's I your would thoughts? say the, the common good would be a good... Um, how do I put this in a, a succinct way? The common good for a society would be those uh, goods that are... Um, well, let's, let's, let's do a, a bigger never table for us first, like private good and common good. I would say, like, I have a, if I have a cake, the cake is mine. It's, it's a private good. If I, have, I give you half mm -hmm. the cake, we both have this private good. Well, then the common good would be the opposite. That the common good would be things that are good for the whole and are good for the um, the spiritual walk of a of the Christian on his way to the goal of TV and sainthood. And mm -hmm. so, having things that would be, you know, um, that could help. Uh, better align the everyday individual in the society on the path towards uh the good it would be the common good yeah yeah no no i agree with that um the first point you make very important the notion of the common good excludes uh a private good forming any part of it because by definition a private good cannot be a common good mm -hmm. because uh because it cannot be common to all members of the of, of, of the um, society. A common good has to be something that can be shared by all, participated in by all, and people's participation in the common good does not in any way uh, dilute it. So that's the first point, mm. common good. Um, second point to make is that the common good is the, it's the, uh, the end, the goal of temporal society the goal of temporal society is to um bring men to uh their sort of to the end proportionate to their nature and, and and of course the common good is the the end of of temporal society um in in, in terms of saying what it is getting more specific uh, in, in 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 sort of an Aristotelian sense, you can think of the end of temporal society as natural happiness. Um, I know that sounds quite vague and and um, <laughs> not very concrete, but 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 you can conceive of the natural end of society being sort of natural happiness, the peace of the Commonwealth, um, and of course. The point that we want to make with regard to integralism is that the realization of the natural end of society cannot occur unless it's subordinated to, directed to the supernatural end. Okay, let's move more into the objection phase now. This is where it gets a little bit more fun. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with my objection, and we're going to get more into the uh, heavy objections as we go on. Uh, first yeah. objection: What would be? So as we said earlier, the common good would be things that would, um, or the goal of this would be to go into integralist mindset would be to have the temporal power 
um, queers, uh, in, uh, to hope align society in a path towards sainthood. We as Catholics would say things like the saints, Mary, um, uh, confessing, all these things, all good. Protestants would not agree with us, obviously. They would have, mm. or Muslims or atheists or Jews for that matter, for anyone really mm. who's not uh, of the true religion. Um, yeah. Would this, how would, how would this work? Uh, would you have, a, would you have, a, well, would, if integralism was um, enacted or not enacted, if, if the integralist mindset was adopted by political leaders, mm. would that create second class citizens of the Protestants, yeah. atheists, Jews, and Mohammedans? Or how would, how would that work in a, um, the multicultural, multi religious yeah. society we live in today? Okay. In a certain manner of speaking, yes, it would. Um, <laughs> But that's nothing to be fearful of. You must, of course, divest yourself. And I must do it too. It's tricky. We must divest ourselves of all the liberal presuppositions about morality in the state. It's very difficult to do that, being, a, of course, a product of secular liberal society. Um, it, it's, um, I don't know if you felt the same way when you were first learning about these things, but it, 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 took, it took a while to, you know, substitute the secular liberal way of thinking, um, sorry, to, 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 to uh, replace the secular liberal way of thinking with a sort of medieval way of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and that, 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 that took some, that took some effort. So yeah. basically your, 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 your question is, um, you know, how would, how would, integralism treat the unbaptized members of the non-catholics mm. um and the first point we ought to make uh is that the council of trent teaches and i'll read i want to get this right so let me find it the council of trent teaches the following the church never passes judgment on anyone who has not yet come into her by the door of baptism so, uh, in other words, unbaptized people are not under the jurisdiction of the church. Hmm. The baptized are under the jurisdiction of the church, and and and, and the church, um, the church has, uh, um, to use the Latin legal phrases, not just auctorias, authority over them, but true potestas, the ability, the power, the right to um, coerce. Um, so, while unbaptized people are not under the jurisdiction of the church. They're not then, you know, subject to canon law. If they lived, resided within a territory of Christendom, you know, if they, if, if they if they lived in a country that was integralist, then while they wouldn't be subject to the law of the church, they would be subject to the social kingship of Christ and to the law of Christ, because the social kingship of Christ would, by definition, be you know juridically recognized in such a society mm -hmm. because the temporal power is subordinated to the spiritual power in, in christendom um so therefore the unbaptized under integralism they while they're not under the protestus of the church they still exist within a political society that is ordered towards the law of christ uh and therefore they uh they they can be subject to laws um, 
intended to preserve the Catholicity or the Christianity of the realm. So you mentioned Mohammedans, Muslims, you mentioned Jews. Um, let's throw Hindus in there for you know, good measure. They wouldn't, um, they wouldn't exist in this future, Lord willing. No. <laughs> I'm not talking genocide. I'm talking mass conversion. I have to clarify this point too. I am not. I am not saying we should genocide all Hindus. No. I'm not saying that. No. I'm saying we should no. convert all of them. Absolutely. We're saying that's a bad thing. Yes, it would be no. bad. Yes, <laughs> that would be very bad. Yes, of course it would. Um, so this raises the question of toleration, religious liberty, and the tradition of the church holds that there's a there's a special group of people Do you, can, can you guess who these special group the, what this special group of people might be mm, the baptized it's the jews ah see the jews on account of their um adherence to the law of moses mm. uh the tradition of the church is that we should extend a degree of toleration towards them um, of course, we we hope and we pray for the conversion of Jews for their salvation. But you can see why, compared to other religions, the Jews are a special case. Mm. Because, of course, they are adherents of the law of Moses, mm. and they are, um, and they retain. Not all of them, but some of the inspired scriptures. So that that's the relation of Christendom to the Jews. Um, but this toleration does not ex extend in the same way to other cults and religions. Um, his, his uh, if I can find it, something from Saint Thomas Aquinas. Um, Saint Thomas Aquinas writes that the rights of other unbelievers so not the Jews, uh, which bring nothing of truth are by no means to be tolerated, except perhaps in order to avoid some evil. So toleration, we're extending it to the Jews, but probably not to other groups, unless that toleration is uh, necessary to avoid some evil. Um, and by evil, St. Thomas means something that would be... Um, something that would be harmful to the faithful and their salvation. Um, but I think we have to draw a distinction between paganistic, idolatrous cults, can't really call them religions, um, on the one hand, and we'll include the Hindus in that, um, and a monotheistic religion on the other hand. Mm. And of course, the other monotheistic religion is uh, Islam. Um, now, insofar as Islam teaches something of truth, and it can't be doubted that it does, because it holds to the truth that there is one true God, it doesn't have um, the truths of revelation concerning the tri-personality of God, but at any rate, it it teaches the oneness and the unicity of God, which is, of course, a truth arrived at 
not only through revelation, but through natural reason. So in the case of Muslims in Christendom, they can be afforded a limited toleration. It's a limited toleration. What we couldn't allow, for instance, is the, the promulgation of um, promulgation of ideas and the dissemination of them that would be harmful to the Catholicity of the temporal society that would undermine the, the kingship of Christ and most importantly that would harm the salvation of souls hmm. so has that answered your question it does but it kind of leads me to a second question yeah have you ever heard of father uh, father James Rooney or was it Dominic? Uh, Father James Dominic Rooney or James Rooney? I can't remember who I don't, exactly. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think I have. Okay, he's a Dominican uh, flyer. Uh, currently, okay. at, uh, currently at a Baptist college in Hong Kong, which is um, a, that's, a that's weird. Me. That's a weird mixture of a Dominican at a Baptist college in Hong Kong. Yeah, well, well, I hope it does some good for the for the Baptist. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. Um, he is very he uh, is very anti integralist Yeah. And he uh, he has an argument that I've I've heard, and uh, he says uh, according to him, I've, I've not read this myself, so I wanted to say according to him, Saint Thomas has said one of the goals of a society is to maintain peace. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know. So how does if the goal of society is to maintain peace in this um, limiting of the uh, you know of um, different actions of of Mohammedans or of, of, of yeah. Protestants or of Hindus, how does that that can, doesn't seem like it can maintain peace? I think like it would cause more problems. So how does that um, mm. does that go against the idea of society being yeah. the goal? That, that, it, seems, it seems to me that would work directly okay. against one, the, the goals of society. Yeah. So uh, in, in that small quote I read from the angelic doctor, I'll read it again. He says, uh, oh, I've got to find it now. Um, bear with me one moment. No problem. Okay, so Aquinas says the rights of other unbelievers, which bring nothing of truth, are by no means to be tolerated. That's the first point. So if a Dominican theologian is, and he might not be saying this, he might it might just be his um, his personal view. But if he's trying to say that Aquinas was not in favour of um, non-toleration, well, quite clearly there. Aquinas says, the rights of other unbelievers which bring nothing of truth are by no means to be tolerated. Mm. But there's a caveat, as there often is, and he says, except perhaps in order to avoid some evil. Mm. And um, Aquinas teaches this elsewhere in, with regard to other things. Um, for example, you might have read someone somewhere saying, so Aquinas was in favor of prostitution or of the legalization of prostitution. Um, because, again, Aquinas says sometimes it may be the case that prohibiting evil things will yield a greater evil hmm. as a consequence than if they were you know, begrudgingly tolerated. Mm -hmm. And that's true. 
that 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 that's that's a point of prudence, right? Mm-hmm. If, you know, if it's the case that greater evil is going to result, then perhaps the prudent thing to do is to avoid the course of action that results in the greater production of evil. But of course, that that firstly that depends on it being the case that limited toleration for Muslims would produce greater evil in society than limited toleration. And uh, I don't see I, this, I, I, don't, I don't I don't see why that would be the case. Um, is this the and I want to ask, is this the basis of his rejection of integralism? That uh, oh, he, integralism of, will produce too much inadvertent evil? But that's one of his objections. The other one would be that um and the same way that integralism and this uh favoring of um Catholic citizens um robs the other citizens of a procedural justice that they are owed as being citizens of a society. As the citizens of a society are owed certain rights uh and uh they're owed things from that society in order to persist. And that they by have been creating this like two-tiered system, you are robbing them of a not so um, right that they they own they, they have they possess. Yeah, um, but, but, but my my question would be what what rights are they being deprived of? I mean, here what they're being deprived of is the um, is, is the pseudo right, the non right to promulgate um, false doctrines, doctrines which are harmful to the salvation of souls. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, maybe he and I have different conceptions of what integralism would look like, but no one's, you know, an, an integralist society would not, it would not um, impose penalties on non, on, on the unbaptized, simply in virtue of them being baptized. I mean, if, if unless you consider the right to practice adultery or Satanism or, you know, <laughs> the kinds of things that are just well, he, evil. He, he had a, he had some yeah. weird takes. One of them was I mean, that he, yeah. didn't, he I mean, didn't believe yeah. abortion. He, said, he didn't believe abortion should be outlawed because the majority of the population would be against it. Um, I, <laughs> with, 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 the, with the utmost respect for this priest, because he's a priest, and because he's Dominican, I have a great love for the Dominicans, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but with you know the utmost respect, if that's his opinion on 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 the you know industrial slaughter of the unborn, yeah. I yeah, it was yeah, that it should be it should yeah. be a state's right issue, and each state to be able to decide because the the right of the individuals to govern themselves is a, a important right. His mm-hmm. argument was very much based in demo- all of his arguments against it are very much um, based in democracy. And I see. And no, I remember listening to it. I remember listening to it. Kind of, this, I remember yelling at the podcast. I was listening to it. He was on, and I said, um, "You say the goal of society is peace. I can, I can make so many different arguments that democracy entails there would never be peace. Mm, <laughs> like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it seems very argue. contradictory right there. Yeah." Um, one, one, one criticism of democracy that you've alluded to is that it's almost like a, you, it's a, you, you, you put the members of society in a perpetual state of conflict with one another. Yeah. 
it's uh, I mean, I can make the same quote he referenced to kind of go against integralism. I can make that same quote from Aquinas walk as an argument against democracy. So it didn't. He seemed he seemed very intelligent on other matters. I listened to him on, and it, just, it seemed like he had bought into a lot of the uh, the lies of modernism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I don't want to. He was he, he, he is a priest. He is a Dominican. He's way smaller than me in many areas, but it seemed like this was not an area of expertise for him. And in doing so, he's adopted a, several um, yeah. incorrect positions out of ignorance yeah. of. Um, and- other positions and and no one can know everything you know so i'm not gonna besmirch him for it but when you start defending a uh, boss the state's rights have a decision on abortion instead of being you kind of lost the plot here <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you've certainly lost a, a point on on this anyone who purports to have come up with an argument against integralism the thing is and as we've discussed this is an infallibly defined point of doctrine he objected to that as well he said the church, he, he doesn't believe the church ever infallibly defined or uh, supported integralism okay and so you know I, I'd, I'd like to know what he makes of unum sanctum what, what, what he makes of uh quanta cur because of course um someone we haven't discussed is um pius the ninth who he repeated the teaching of boniface the eighth in uh, in, an, in, a, in a, I think it's either an encyclical, or I think it's an encyclical, Quantum Cura, um, and he um, he condemns the idea that the best state of society is one in which state and church are separate. He condemns that. He says, no, this is you know this is contrary to truth, and truth is that the best state of society is one in which the church and state are um are uh un- united according to the um integralist doctrine um so you know that there's an instance of this being infallibly taught unum sanctum is an instance of this being infallibly taught you can go back to pope uh, gelasius the first who in his letter to the byzantine i think it's the byzantine emperor um taught the two sword doctrine that there are two powers both belong to the church. Temporal power belongs to the emperor, and the, the, sorry, the temporal power is given to the emperor. The emperor has to use it for the for, for the um, uh, uh, has to use it for the good of the church. This is infallible teaching, um, and even if it even if it wasn't infallibly defined by Pius the Ninth, if you can make that argument and you can't, and then you can make the further argument that it wasn't infallibly defined by Boniface the Eighth. Inunum sanctum. Okay, but even then, and we've discussed earlier, there's a third way the church teaches infallibly, and that's through the universal ordinary magisterium. And you can probably, probably make the argument that it's been taught so many times, so universally, that it constitutes the truth of the universal ordinary magisterium. Yeah. But of course, you don't need to do that because you have unum sanctum and you have contacura uh, teaching this doctrine infallibly. Now, on this topic, this is actually one of the few areas where I think Jacques Maritain was kind of um, off. Yeah, yeah, he had a, what was it, his book, Integral Humanism, I think it was called? Mm-hmm. And, a, and you, know, a, you, know, you know who likes to use that phrase, Integral Humanism? It's, uh, it's uh, my, my good friend, uh, uh, Tony Arnett, the guy who I clash <laughs> with on Twitter all the time. Um, he uses that 
phrase from Maratan, integral humanism. Mm. And and unsurprisingly, he's an opponent of integralism. Of course. <laughs> it's uh yeah, I mean I love you know I love Maritan. He's probably the main I mean I out of besides besides St. Thomas Aquinas, he's probably the most talked about person on the channel. Oh yeah. Um, um he's, this, he's this, incredible. this channel could easily be called the Maritan channel. I mean and, and Jacques Maritan, uh he is getting me through my medieval metaphysics class with uh <laughs> with, with top grade top marks um thank, thanks to him and his yeah. you know just his impeccable body of writing he was he was friends you know we have to we have to make allowances for the friends when it comes yeah, to political but, ideas you know it's that's just, it's, very it's, true that's very true yeah you know after uh, politically speaking after uh saint louis it was all just downhill <laughs> yeah it's all down here. Um, okay, so we've kind of gone through some. I've gone through a few Catholic objections. So, like, um, from it now, I'm going to move into more of a Protestant objections, and then we're going to go from there to atheist objections. Okay. So these are going to be more. Uh, these are going to be a bit more different. A bit different. So I'm curious what you say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the same way, we are tripartite beings with body, soul, and mind. It seems that you are saying society is dualistic with the temporal power, the state, and the spiritual power. Um, spiritual power of the church. But it seems to me. You are missing the third power, the citizenry. Are they not owed the same level of respect as the other two powers? So then they consent to any government structure to be accounted for. Okay. This is interesting. And this is what? This is meant to be a sort of more Protestant-minded objection? Perhaps? Yeah, more, more Protestant-minded because you focus on the, uh, the the individual and the citizen having a authority mm. in some way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you mentioned the soul and the body. And... Um, a metaphor that was often used by the popes in relation to the two swords uh, is that the temporal power and the spiritual power are related to one another in, in a similar way or in, in, in an analogous way to the body and soul. Um, that in the sense that the body needs the animating soul as its life principle, the state needs the church as its. And so without the church, if you separate church and state, it's like separating soul and body. It produces only death secularization therefore is a death sentence uh and and i and i think you know if, if you exam if you investigate secular society if you look at secular society you see the evidence of death all around just yeah you know it's 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 a dead society morally dead it's yes yeah. aesthetically dead it's dead in every in every conceivable way um, we live in the we live in the uh, caucus of a once great civilization. Mm, yeah, we do. Um, so, could you, you right, if you repeat what you said? In the same way, we are tripartite beings: this body, soul, and mind. It seems that you are saying society is dualistic with the temporal power of the state and the spiritual power of the church. Right. But it seems yeah. to me you are missing the third power of the citizenry. Are they not owed the same ah. level of respect and authority as the other two powers? Okay, so we've 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 discussed the two powers that God ordained for there to be two powers over men: the spiritual mm -hmm. power and the temporal power. The question then, is there a third power, the citizenry? And the answer is no, because the citizenry is not a, is a collection of people. It's not a power ordained by God in the same way the spiritual power and the temporal power is. Um, the temporal power ha has the end of um, ha has the end of bringing men to the uh, goal assigned to them by the author of nature, by God. 
and and the, and the spiritual power has the end of bringing men to heaven um, and saving them from the fires of hell. Um, again, the citizenry doesn't have an end in that way. It's not a power. Um, it doesn't have auctorias. Uh, it doesn't have authority. Um, this notion that the people, the citizens, are the source of power, of authority, is an erroneous uh, liberal doctrine, doctrine of liberalism. Um, the, 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 the rationalists, so this 18th century Enlightenment rationalists, who rejected divine revelation, rejected the doctrine that God is the sovereign of the universe, and that Christ is the king of kings, and that therefore God is the only source of authority. Uh, rejecting this, they, uh, they concluded that the source and the origin of political authority was not God, but man. Uh, and, and this is, this is uh, what's sometimes called popular sovereignty. It's the basis of, um, it's the basis of what's called social contract theory, uh, which is very important in, in liberalism and in classical liberalism. It's the, it's the doctrine of Locke, it's the doctrine of Hobbes, uh, and, and, and it's completely opposed to divine revelation. It's been condemned by the pontiffs. Um, the, the, the idea in social contract theory is that power, authority, it resides primarily in the in the people in the citizenry, and then it flows into the hands of the temporal rulers. But despite this, in some way, it continues to belong primarily to the people. I mean, this is patently absurd. Um, Saint <laughs> Pius the Tenth said, you know, he basically said this is fucking retarded because he pointed <laughs> out he pointed he didn't use those words, um, but he pointed out. The manifest absurdity in claiming that power belongs to the people, the, the people give it to the rulers, but it still belongs to the people because it's in the nature of delegation, which is what's happening here. People are delegating power. It's in the nature of delegation to it to descend, not to ascend. If I delegate power, I'm it, it's coming from above and I'm giving it to someone. It's not coming from below and, and flowing upwards. That's a contradiction. That's against the nature of delegation. And um, another great pope, one of my favorite popes, Leo XIII, um, he condemned absolutely this doctrine in, uh, in his encyclical on political government. Um, I actually think I can find it. If you give me one moment. No problem. Because it's very interesting and it will answer your question. Maybe it might be in Denzinger. Uh, While you're looking for that, I'm going to remind everybody to um, like, comment, share, subscribe. Um, this, has been, this may have been a dry episode, but it's been a very informative episode. So if you made it this far, good on you. And uh, make sure you tell people if you say it to them, let them know, hey, this might be a little dry, but it's definitely informative. And it gets it gets more um, – uh, it gets – what's the – you know, and that's something I just realized. When you say something's dry, uh, like content-wise or humor-wise, what's the opposite of that? Do we say it's wet? <laughs> Do we? Uh, wet. This is a very wet episode. I no. Um, juicy. I guess you'd say it's no juicy. That sounds like it's um like a scandalous thing. Um, sounds sounds gay. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a weird juicy episode, boys. Oh. No. <laughs> um, huh. Wonder what the opposite of dry would be in that kind of context. Dry. Um, exciting. 
It's been well, exciting. That's a good one. Um, that doesn't seem to fit, but it's the only option we can think of. So it's exciting. I, I think many of your listeners find theology exciting. So <laughs> I, would, I hope so. <laughs> well, we hope so. Otherwise, you know, what are they doing listening to? Oh, they love my. They love my theology. They, they love my beautiful artistic list. <laughs> it must be that. It must be that. Anyway, I found it. Um, Here we go. So on social contract, on on the notion of popular sovereignty. Leo XIII writes, modern writers in great numbers, following in the footsteps of those who called themselves philosophers in the last century, declare that all power comes from the people, that consequently those who exercise power in society do not exercise it from their own authority, but from an authority delegated to them by the people, and on the condition that it can be revoked by the will of the people from whom they hold it. Quite contrary is the sentiment of Catholics, who hold that the right of governing derives from God as its natural uh, and necessary principle. Uh, so there you have it, Pius the 10th and Leo the 13th rejecting this idea that power comes from the, the power comes from the citizenry, from the people. So no, integralism is not neglecting to account for this third power, the citizenry, because it doesn't exist. Uh, there is the temporal power, there is the spiritual power and the citizenry are, you know, that's subject, subject to the temporal power. And insofar as they're baptized Christians, they're subject to the spiritual power. Even if they're not baptized Christians under integralism, they're sort of indirectly subject to it insofar mm. as the temporal power has to have consideration for supernatural things. Uh, so no, in response to that objection, no, 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 it doesn't work. Okay, this is going to be more of a Calvinist objection. Uh, oh, Jesus yeah. was Jesus was apolitical. He did not oh, seek to he? take over. <laughs> he did not seek to take over any <laughs> temple power. Yeah. He said um, he was not a messiah who came to rule or in yeah. the temple yeah. in the uh, temple sense that Jews expected him to. Uh, why shouldn't we? If we're supposed to be like Jesus, shouldn't we yeah. uh, seek to be apolitical as well? Ah, there we go. So it's interesting because most of the time, what you hear is people of you know whatever political ideology saying, actually, Jesus was uh, whatever I am. So actually, you know, Jesus was a socialist. Now Jesus was a Jesus, Jesus was like a Prager you loving <laughs> neoconservative. That's right. Um, um, you know, J Jesus was you know an anarchist. He, he was, Jesus was an anarchist. Jesus was a libertarian. Um, G Jesus was a was, was a great advocate of Judeo Christians, whatever it is. You know, um, so this is a, certainly a new one. The claim that actually no, Jesus was none of those. He was apolitical. Um, he was apolitical. Um, so. The first thing to say about this is, well, we, we've already discussed St. Luke's Gospel and Christ telling the apostles, as we've seen, that there are two swords, that they belong to both of them, and that these two swords, the material political sword and the spiritual sword, it would be very strange just to, to, for, for, for an apolitical person to, um, to, 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 be, to be giving the material sword of temporal power and authority to to his apostles um the the, the the second point i might make is that throughout in, in several places in sacred scripture our blessed lord not only reproached that spiritually reproached people but also cities the polis, the polity. Um, 
you know, he's not only telling off people, he's telling off cities. Mm. And that, that's something someone who's apolitical could not do. St. Matthew, for instance, um, and again, I think I wrote it down in preparation. Uh, oh, yeah. St. Matthew says in his gospel, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein were done the most of his miracles for that they had not done penance. OK, so there's Christ rebuking a city. Um, and of course, the objection, the objector, the person making this objection might say, well, oh, this is very mysterious. This is I don't know what to make of this <laughs> because cities are not people. They don't have souls. So, you know, why, why is our apolitical Lord rebuking a city, a polis, a political, uh, a political association? And of course, the teaching of the church and the tradition informs us that it's not merely men who have duties to God. And of course, they do. We do. But societies too. societies have duties towards the true religion. Pius X, again, he, he, he taught that you, you can't build society without God. In Mater et Magistra, um, St. John the 23rd, he, 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 he also teaches something similar. That, you know, I think he says something like the great folly of our age is that we're trying to build temporal society without the only foundation on which it can endure, you know, namely God. Uh, and Pius IX, infallibly defined, and of course this isn't going to mean much to a um, Calvinist, but Pius IX infallibly defined that states have moral duties towards the true religion. Uh, and, uh, and, and I mentioned um, St. Luke's Gospel again in the Two Swords. So it, it, scripture teaches that our Lord has uh, a political doctrine, that he has established in the Catholic Church the city of God, and that he has given the church temporal power and spiritual power, but that the temporal power is to be exercised not by the church, but by temporal rulers, and that they are to orient their rule towards the law of Christ. And so, no, Jesus is not apolitical in that sense, not in the not 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 in the sense that we're talking about. Of course, Jesus wasn't. He you know he he didn't he didn't the the, the second person of the Blessed Trinity didn't become man primarily to you know teach a to campaign or to canvas for a political <laughs> party, but he does teach a doctrine concerning the temporal power. Uh, so. Um, yeah, that's the point. The salvific doctrine of Christ applies not only to men, but to human societies. Um, man is a social animal. We know this. Aristotle teaches this. He joins with other men in society to reach his natural end. But his natural end is subordinated to his supernatural end. So temporal society has to play its role in bringing men to heaven. That's Christ's teaching. Uh, so no, he's not. He's not. You, you, you can't object to integralism by claiming that he's apolitical because that's that's contrary to his teaching okay let's move on to the secular atheist objections now mm. why should the catholic church have a say over anything the state does the mm. state has to represent all of its citizens not just the catholic ones are you condoning forced conversions or are you saying we should create the integralism to create an incentive structure that those who want to get the benefits of living in an integral catholic society have to convert yeah, so, so the objection here is, you know, if I want to sodomize my 
my <laughs> my underage boyfriend or I want to abort babies. The church should not be telling me not to do that. And the, and the state certainly should not be telling me that I can't do that. Um, this objection is clearly, you know, clearly on shaky ground. About the forced conversions, I know, look, people are, pe people are not immaculate. You know, only two people were. Um, and so the history of the church, unfortunately, you know, there were forced conversions. I mean, nothing compared to what the Muslims have done or doing or continue to do. Mm. Um, but forced conversion is clearly repugnant. It's, it's, um, it's a contradiction. You can't force a conversion. It's impossible. It's, and, and it's utterly condemned. Uh, Pius XII, in, um, I, I think, in Mr. Chikoporus, I think, uh, in the mystical body, in the encyclical, taught that, um, not taught, but condemned, um, condemned, uh, condemned forced conversion. Uh, he's, you know, he teaches it's ontologically impossible. Mm. You can't come to faith through, you know, coercion of will. It must, it, it must be perfectly free. Um, and, 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 but that, that, that's the, that that's the church doctrine, even if it was not always historically the perfect practice of the church, still revealed truth. Um, and so, yeah. What I would say into the uh, the second part of that was like creating a society that would um incentivize conversion uh, has to get the benefits of society. I'm like, why would that be wrong? <laughs> I don't particularly see anything wrong with uh, yeah in creating incentives for those who are uh, who want to convert. You know. Yeah, well, to, to the atheist, conversion, I mean, what, what does it mean? It ha there's no supernatural consequence of it. You just become, you, you, you just go to mass on a Sunday and you go to confession and you receive Holy Communion and then you die like everyone else and, 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 and you know, and that's the end of the show. But of course, to a Catholic, what does conversion mean? It means saving souls immortal <laughs> souls from the fires of hell um and so you know, of course of course we want to uh create incentives uh for people to convert why because we're not evil people and we want and we we desire very earnestly the salvation of souls because god desires the salvation of souls um <laughs> And you know, Christ desires the salvation of souls, and we want to be like Christ. And we 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 want all people. We would love for all people. We would love for all people to be saved. Um, is there any more to this objection? Anything else you want me to talk about? Uh, I have one more objection. I think. Let me find it. Um, no, we can't cover that one. This is a, this last one's a fun one, so I'm gonna go for it anyway. Um, the state on. Here you go. The, the, this sounds very much like you want to return to the political dark ages by abolishing the separation between church and state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> Chad, yes, me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I do, but I mean, I mean, yeah, I do. Um, I do want to <laughs> repeal the separation of church and state. Catholics do want to repeal. I mean, every pope has taught that. The Vatican, <laughs> the Second Council of the Vatican, People often say, oh, um, in 
Dignitatis Humanae, the church uh, just, you know, either repudiates this teaching or it um, forgets about it. Of course, it's not true because in in, in that document, it's the, 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 they say very explicitly that we leave intact the traditional teaching of the church concerning church and state uh, <laughs> or, you know, um, how, however they word it. Um, this, the, the separation of church and state is calamitous for society. Mm. Just look at things, and you can't yeah. tell me it's not been. It's been a good. It's yeah. been a good experiment. Let, like it's like separating. Like separating the body. Yeah, it's like it's separating soul and body, and, the, body. and you said, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's death. Secularism is death. Um, separation of church and state is death for the Commonwealth. Um, and you know, as we've discussed, it's a doctrine that's wholly contrary to divine revelation, uh, which teaches. The spiritual power and temporal power ought to be joined, body to soul, uh, and that the temporal power should be put at the service of the spiritual power. Um, and we've also discussed, and again, we're, we're basically recapitulating what we discussed here, <laughs> uh, that um, the notion that church should be separated from the state has been the subject of papal condemnation. Pius IX, Contacura, infallibly condemned. And um, there's another, what, what's, what, he, in another encyclical of his, I think in um, Ad Apostolice, maybe, um, I could be wrong. I think in that document, he teaches that where the laws of the state conflict with the laws of the church, the, you know, the divine positive law, but natural law, that the laws of the laws of Christ should prevail and in a in a in another encyclical i think in atribism uh, uh, maybe or elsewhere i'm not sure he he more he's more explicit he says uh you know that the idea the liberal idea that the church should be separated from the state is an error an error that's opposed to divine revelation um so you know there you have it Yep. Do I want to return to separation church and state? Yes. Why? Because I'm a Catholic and it's the infallible teaching of the church that separation of church and state is contrary to divine revelation. And the Second Council of the Vatican leaves this teaching intact. Okay. Well, that covers all of it. For yeah. Matthew here, very wet episode. Yes, it is, Matthew. Um, this is great. Thank you, Has. So much for coming on. Um, no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. One last question. Uh, where, where can people go to read more about this? Are there any books that yeah. kind of cover the general topics of integralism, or to just um, go find so, some super cool in the uh, odd, the oddball, right? Not oddball, but the um, intermittent, yeah. writings of saints on this topic. So, um, there's a, I think it's a Benedictine, Edmund Waldstein is very good, and he writes. I mean, he just produces so much writing. On this subject, uh, he has a great work called Integralism and the Common Good. Mm. We, we discussed the common good a little bit. So if you, anyone's interested in the relation of, of integralism to the common good, you know, check that out. Um, Thomas Pink, Professor Thomas Pink is a professor at my university. He has written many essays on the subject. Very, very good. He's uh, demonstrated in his work the continuity of the papal teaching that we've discussed with the um, 
with the Vatican II stuff. He shows the harmony between the two. That's very important. And a English Dominican uh, friar and priest and an English professor of theology. Uh, these are two people, the, the priest and the professor. They, they, they wrote, uh, this is uh, Father Thomas Crean and uh, Alan Fimister. They wrote a book called uh, in, Integralism. Uh, I think I think it's contextualism. Is that that's quite it's written in the in the style of like the scholastic uh, manuals. And I've heard very good things good. about that book. It's on my list. Oh yeah, um, it's very it's 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 uh, it's really exceptional. Hmm. Um, and of course, that book is uh, it's called integralism, but it's really a manual of um, of Catholic uh, political philosophy. Hmm. So you you learn a lot more from reading that book than just uh, you get a full overview of. Of, of the of, of the Catholic philosophical tradition concerning politics. Um, lastly, um, uh, with regard to papal documents, we read a bit of Unum Sanctum. That's the clearest teaching of the two swords, I think, and it's only a page long. It's on the Vatican website, I'd imagine. Read that, it's only a page. Uh, Quanta Cura, Pius the Ninth, and I recommend highly any of the political encyclicals of Leo the Thirteenth. They are masterful. He is a master of social teaching, of political teaching. You know, you can't go astray reading those. And I, I would add to that list. Um, these are collect. These are integralism, the common good. This is a uh, volume one, family, city, and state. Mm -hmm. And then uh, integralism, the common good, volume two, uh, the two powers. It's a collection of essays from the uh, Zosias. I think I say it. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah that's right. Um, and that, that's a very good resource, great website where they publish articles on Catholic political philosophy, integralism, political theology. So, you know, anyone interested in this in this subject should definitely go there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Has, thank you so much for coming on. This was a, a lot of fun, very informative. Um, we'll have to do, well, we'll have to do, we'll, we'll have to do this again sometime on, on uh, distributism or something. Yeah. That. Yeah. No, that. That would be. That. That'd be very good. And I, I'd be happy to do that. Fantastic. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. Um, we hit the exit. We hit the exit intro. God we'll bless get you. Out of here. God bless you all.